Dear Lord, we thank you for this time we can spend together studying and learning more from your word. We pray that you, the Lord of truth, your living word would hold us up, that you would look down on us, and that may we with you smite the lies that vex thy groaning earth. Help us to slay falsehood and error. Help us to understand and know your truth. And be sanctified in your truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. That's a different hymn. That's why one reason I picked it is it's different than, I don't know that I've ever sang it here before. Um, We know the tune, though. Um, But it, it goes very well with the lesson. The God of truth for whom we long, that who wilt hear our prayer, do thine own battle in our hearts and slay the falsehood there. I love old hymns. (laughs) So last week, uh, after the lesson, Dale came up to me and asked, who's Gordon Clark? And I went, oh, you don't know who Gordon Clark is? (laughs) My guess is he's not the only one. And I didn't even think about that, and especially last week when I used so much information from Gordon Clark. I thought it would be good to take, go on a rabbit trail here and give you some background information on Gordon Clark and who he was. Uh, if you have any of his books, in the back of his books, there's a short biography on Gordon Clark. And I have that written here. I'm going to read it to you. It's just about a page long. Um, but it'll explain to you who Gordon Clark is. Um, it didn't have um, who wrote it. I think it was written by John Robbins, who is a guy who ran the Trinity Foundation. The Trinity Foundation is the foundation that distributes Gordon Clark's works. So if you want a Gordon Clark book, the Trinity Foundation is who has them all and distributes them. And and, uh, and a monthly periodical that's usually based on Gordon Clark's work. Sometimes it's based on other things related to it. Um, that's the Trinity Foundation. And I think the guy who used to run it, he's passed away now, it was John Robbins. And I think that's who wrote this biography, but I'm not exactly sure. Before I read the biography, let me give you one more thing. Um, Kind of to show you that Gordon Clark is trustworthy, one way to do that would be to have show him that he is quoted by somebody you already know and trust. And that would be John MacArthur. And so I searched Grace to You last night, just quickly, for Gordon Clark. And sure enough, about a dozen times in MacArthur's sermons, he's quoted Gordon Clark, at least the ones that are on the website. But that doesn't include the times that in MacArthur's books... He's quoted Gordon Clark, and I know I've read some of his books and ran across quotes from Gordon Clark. So, funny thing is, is one of the quotes was from where John MacArthur quoted Gordon Clark was from 1 Corinthians, the same commentary by Gordon Clark on 1 Corinthians that I was using for last week's lesson. But this was in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Why don't you turn there? We'll look there quickly. So John MacArthur, in one of his sermons, was going through 1 Corinthians 15. And when he came to verse 58, John MacArthur quoted Gordon Clark and gave Gordon Clark's paraphrase. What I remember I told you last week, Gordon Clark in his commentaries gives his own translation. And so MacArthur quotes the Gordon Clark translation of 1 Corinthians 15:58. So I'll read that verse to you, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And this is what John MacArthur says. I'm going to start with John MacArthur. And he says, Gordon Clark has an interesting paraphrase of this. He says, quote, Therefore, we should mortify emotion, be steadfast, unchangeable, not erratic and scatterbrained, easily discouraged, and should multiply our good works in the knowledge that the Lord will make them profitable. End quote. MacArthur goes on to say, every good work you do for God in this world has eternal ramifications, right? So um, I'm going to now read you the biography of Gordon Clark. And one reason I gave you that quote from MacArthur, who was quoting Gordon Clark, too, is that it fits the life of Gordon Clark very well. This verse is a very good verse for the life of Gordon Clark. So here I'll read it to you. Born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1902 and interred in Westcliff, Colorado in 1985, Gordon Haddon Clark was one of the most profound and brilliant scholars God has ever given his church. 
Dr. Clark was a college professor for 60 years. From the time he received his baccalaureate degree from the University of Pennsylvania in 1924 until his death in 1985, he was also the author of more than 40 books and hundreds of articles, essays, and book reviews. Despite his prolific writing, Dr. Clark's brilliant work remains little known and less admired, admired in contemporary churches, seminaries, and colleges, for they have rejected the premise upon which the whole of Dr. Clark's work is based. The Bible alone, and the Bible is, is in its inerrancy, is the word of God. Rather than agreeing that Christianity claims to have a systematic monopoly on the truth, contemporary churches and schools seek common ground with non-Christian faiths, philosophies, and traditions. Nevertheless, Dr. Clark's consistent Christian philosophy and theology are becoming more and more well-known and appreciated among Christians who have remained faithful to Scripture. And it is for these genuine Christians that the Trinity Foundation has undertaken the task of collecting, editing, and publishing Dr. Clark's works. So here, I'll stop reading for a minute. That's, I found that to be very true. It was only after Gordon Clark had passed away that his works are becoming more and more popular. And the biography continues. Although he had descended from Presbyterian ministers, Dr. Clark was to choose a different path, although he too would be an ordained minister, Presbyterian minister in 1944. His interest was philosophy, and his career, career was teaching, and both his philosophy and his teaching were acts of worship. After receiving his degree in 1924 from the University of Pennsylvania, Mr. Clark was invited to teach at the university, and he was awarded his doctorate in philosophy in 1929 after writing his doctrinal dissertation on Aristotle. During those years, Mr. Clark was active in the Presbyterian Church. Being ordained an elder in 1927, he vigorously opposed modernism within that denomination. His energetic opposition to modernism was to cost him the chairmanship of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania in 1936. So he was fighting modernism at the Department of Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania, and that's what lost him his job there. He constantly stood for God's word. It's kind of amazing to think that even at a place like the University of Pennsylvania back in those days was, was accepting of Christian stuff, but at that time it was on its way out. The biography continues. While teaching at the University of Pennsylvania from 1924 to 1936, Dr. Clark assisted J. Gresham Macon, the eminent Princeton theologian, in organizing a new seminary in 1929 and a new denomination in 1936. That denomination he started was the OPC, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, both in Pennsylvania and after the board of Princeton Seminary had been reorganized to make modernism rather than Christianity its theology. And after the Presbyterian Church had expelled Mr. Macon for his defense of the gospel, and that was in violation of its own judicial procedure. So after Gordon Clark was left, the, the biography continues, after leaving the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Clark was invited to teach at Wheaton College in Illinois, where he became one of the college's most popular and admired instructors. But his experience at the University of Pennsylvania repeated itself. His tenure at Wheaton was cut short by a change in administration. The new regime, Arminian rather than modernist, was offended by Dr. Clark's consistent biblical Christianity and forced his resignation again. So also, while in Philadelphia, where Gordon Clark was ordained a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which he helped started. In 1936 is when he started it. He came attack under again, this time for his defense of consistent Christianity. But this time, it came from a faction within the Orthodox Presbyterian denomination that had been influenced by neo-Orthodox theology. I'm going to stop there for a minute. The attack he got at, under the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, that attack came from a man named Cornelius Van Til. And if you've heard of the, Gordon, the Clark Van Til controversy, that's where it came from. When the OPC went to ordain Gordon Clark, Van Til is the one who tried to stop that ordination, and that's where the controversy started. Anyway, um, back to the biography. In 1944, Butler University in Indianapolis invited Dr. Clark to become chairman of its Department of Philosophy. He joined the university in January 1945. 
There he remained for the next 28 years until his retirement from the university in 1973. During this time at Butler, and despite ecclesiastical and academic hostility, Dr. Clark produced a magnificent body of work. For 40 more years, he continued his warfare against modernism, Arminianism, neo-orthodoxy within the churches, as well as with secular philosophies in academia. No one in modern times has confidently defended the faith against both the world and the wolves as Gordon Clark. That's the end of the biography. So that gives you an idea of who Gordon Clark was. Um, his story is too familiar, going from place to place, fighting for God's word and being kicked out for doing it. Any questions on that? I anticipated one question. So one of the things that he was fighting for against, the first thing that showed up in, um, at the University of Pennsylvania, came up again at Wheaton, came up again in other places. One, it was Arminianism, which you guys know. We've covered, in fact, we covered that. I covered that with Doctrines of Grace, what Arminian was and how that's the opposite of that. Um, but the other thing that came up that he was constantly fighting was modernism. So I kind of anticipated that somebody was going to ask me, what's modernism? So I tried looking it up, and sure enough, the best explanation of modernism that I found was by John MacArthur. <laughs> so let me read that to you also. And I want to read this to you, and it's the biography of Gordon Clark ties together with modernism because that's what he was fighting, but modernism ties with our lesson. And I didn't cover this back a few weeks ago, but I could have. It fits quite well. Okay, this is John MacArthur. I'm going to read it right off his website here. Modernity, modernism, modernity in simple terms was characterized by the belief that truth exists and that scientific method is the only reliable way to determine that truth. In the so-called modern era, most academic disciplines, philosophy, science, literature, and education, were driven primarily by rationalistic presuppositions. In other words, modern thought treated human reason as the final arbiter of what is true. The modern mind discounted the idea of the supernatural and looked for scientific and rationalistic explanations for everything. But modern thinkers retained their belief that knowledge of the truth is possible. They were still seeking universal and absolute truths that applied to everyone. Scientific methodologies became the chief means by which modern people sought to gain that knowledge. You see how that relates to our lesson, right? You all, if you've been here for that, especially for that first lesson, know how to answer that, right? It says that modernism or modernity says that truth exists and that the scientific method is the only reliable way to determine truth. You all know why that's not true. And now you see what Gordon Clark was fighting and why I keep quoting Gordon Clark in these lessons because this is, his, this epistemology is what he's really good at. Um, but that gives you an idea of what modernism, it gives you an idea of who Gordon Clark was and what he was fighting and how that all relates to what we're covering here. Right. Any questions on that? Yeah, for the most part he was, and a lot of his writings were really good. But the, what I didn't cover it, but what he was fighting with Gordon Clark was he was wrong. Like he was, and it was pretty clear. And the OPC did ordain Clark and did dismiss the Van Til charges against him. And basically it was, it had to do with Van Til thinking that um, when it comes to man's thoughts, they can in no... Um, at no one point coincide with God's thoughts, is what Van Til said. But if you think about truth, if God knows all truth, God's word is truth, if you know any truth, which God has claimed you do, right, for you to know anything that's true, that must coincide with God's thoughts at that point, right? Otherwise, it can't be true. That's right. And God teaches us the truth. And one of the places Gordon Clark went to for that was 1 Corinthians that we covered last week. We have the mind of Christ, right? And that's why one reason I read you that quote from Gordon Clark um, 
last week that basically said that. That we have the mind of Christ. God teaches us truth. So if God knows truth, then, you know, if the only thing God knows is truth, if you know any truth, then you, your thoughts are God's thoughts at that point. Right? That makes sense? It's a pretty simple explanation for something that was kind of a war that went on for a long time, where a lot of wise and smart people argued about that for a very long time. And that's just my simple way of explaining it. All right. I don't know how far I'm going to get in my lesson today now. <laughs> that was our rabbit trail. Back to sanctified in truth. I will, I'll give a little review here. I think, looking around, I think everybody has been here for all these lessons, so I'll go through it fairly quickly. Um, God's Word is truth. What's truth? Truth is a proposition that's true. Very basic. Truth determines what is true and false, what is right and wrong. The only real truth is absolute truth as it is defined by God. Man cannot determine truth and right and wrong. Science can't determine truth. We've covered that. The Bible, God's word, is the standard by which all propositions are measured to determine their truthfulness. God's word is truth. But not only is everything in God's word true, but God's word contains all truth. All truth is either expressly stated in Scripture or is or can be logically deduced from Scripture. Truth is in Christ. Christ is the truth. And truth and knowledge are to, truth and knowledge are limited to revelation, what God has revealed in His Word. Only God has all the data. Only God is omniscient. Only God's Word can contain truth because only God has all the information. God determines the laws of the universe because he alone created the universe, so he alone determines truth. When Jesus was praying to the Father, he said, your word is truth. And all truth is contained in God's word. That was the first section. Then we are saved by the truth. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says, And the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. To be saved means to come to a knowledge of the truth. We have been born again through the living and enduring word of God, from 1 Peter 1. For if you've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. We have born again through the Word of God, through the truth. And Gordon Clark wrote, Since God is truth, a contempt for truth is equally a contempt for God. And then the last section, the next section, delivered from error to truth, which we covered last week. We have been delivered from error to truth. God rescued or delivered us from error, from the domain of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of light. That was from Colossians 1, 12 through 13. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In Ephesians 5, 8, 9 for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. The light is truth. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. True Christians understand the truth. They walk in obedience to the truth. God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We have been delivered from darkness to light, from Satan to God, from air to truth, so that we may be sanctified. And I'll get to that in a minute. True Christians should not accept error because they have come to the light, the truth. As Christians, we have been regenerated with a new nature, and that new nature comes to a knowledge of the truth. It understands the truth, it embraces the truth, it loves the truth. And it submits to the truth as we learn it from God who teaches it to us. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 says we are being taught by God. And then 
in this section, we looked at a few verses from the book of John, and we're going to go through the book of John again, picking out some verses. Um, but John 8, 31, 32 says, So Jesus was saying those, to those Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The only thing that will ever set a sinner free from bondage of darkness is the truth. Truth is what sets us free for salvation and for sanctification. And the way we receive the truth is through the spirit of truth. Now we're on the section spirit of truth, and this is where we left off last week. I got about halfway through it. John 16, 13 We covered this last week. I'll just read it to you again. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. and He will disclose to you what is to come. And we went through half a dozen verses that talked about the spirit of truth and how the spirit of truth is the counselor or the comforter, the advocate, the intercessor, or the assistant. We have an assistant from God. Isn't that amazing? And the word for helper there that's used in these verses, parakletos in the Greek, literally means one called aside to help. And it carries the idea of exhorting and teaching. We have been given the spirit of truth to enable us to understand the truth. The spirit of truth teaches us the truth. And the Holy Spirit does not reveal truth to us in some magical or mystical way. Truth comes from the Word of God as the Spirit of truth reveals or explains it to us. We would not even be able to understand the Word of God without the Spirit from God, the Spirit of truth. And then we went through 1 Corinthians 2, verses, um, I think it was verse 6 through 16, and we went through that in detail, and that's where we left off. So I'm back to where we were. Um, I'll read that passage to you just to remind you of some of the things that we covered in 1 Corinthians 2 and what we went over. Um, I'll start in verse 9 if you're following along in your Bibles. In fact, why don't you turn there and follow along with me. 1 Corinthians 2, I'll start in verse 9. This will hopefully jog your memory to where we were when we stopped last week. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 2, I'll read through verse 16. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit teaches, so for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among, among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual matters with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand him, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have received the Spirit, who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which are the things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Those are the things the Spirit teaches us, which includes the truth that's contained in God's Word. And as I want to, I'll mention briefly too, also Dale pointed out that if you read 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 6, it's a, the background of this is about the atonement. So this also, the things that God is teaching us, if you look at the direct context, the things freely given to us by God is also talking to the, the death of Christ on the cross and Christ paying the penalty for our sins is the direct background to this. And then I read to you a quote by Gordon Clark last week, and that's where I left off. I'll read it to you again just so you can see um, how this relates. 
And as I read this again, keep in mind, this quote was written in 1975. But it is way more applicable today than it was then. There's another point that needs emphasized in our modern epic. The bald assertion that we have the mind of Christ is the refutation of all pietistic, non-doctrinal, anti-intellectual, anti-theological Christianity. It is undoubtedly true that we do not have all the mind of Christ and that we need more instruction. But it is also indubitably true that the doctrines already received are Christ's mind. What we think and what Christ thinks in these cases are identical. Our concepts are not inadequate concepts, nor are they analogical or similar concepts. concepts. They are indeed Christ's concepts, his own mind, the very wisdom of God. That is what we have received from God. And also in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually praised. And so now this is new information. This is where I left off. So I'm going to talk about that part of 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, uh, through the rest of this section on the Spirit of Truth. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The natural man does not accept the truth, and he cannot accept the truth. It is foolishness to him. Gordon Clark says it's nonsense to them. The natural man does not even have the capacity to understand and believe the truth. Why? Because they don't have the spirit of truth to guide them in all truth. Go to John chapter 3. We're going to spend some time here in the book of John. The Gospel of John. Chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. John 3, 20 and 21. Dale, can you read that for us? Unbelievers will not come to the light. Uh, The NAS translation says, for everyone who does evil hates the light. The light will show their deeds for what they are, and they will know their own condemnation. But he who knows the truth comes to the truth and practices the truth, loves the truth, comes to the light. Very clear in John. And then uh, go to John 8. John 8, verse 45, Jesus was speaking, and he said, he's speaking to the unbelieving Jews, and he says, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. He says, because I speak the truth, you don't believe me. The implication is the the opposite, too, right? If Jesus spoke a lie, they'd believe him. But they can't believe him when he tells them the truth. They won't and can't understand the things he tells them when he speaks the truth. Then Jesus goes on to say two verses later, in verse 47, He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear, because you are not of God. Right? This is back to, we covered this in, um, in the doctrines of grace. It is being of God that enables them to understand the truth. Because they are not of God means they cannot understand it. They don't hear it. It is being of God that qualifies you to understand the truth, the words of God. The reason men don't believe is because they are not chosen by God as his sheep. They are not of God. Unbelievers are not of God, have not been given the spirit of God, so they have no ability to understand the words of God. Instead, unbelievers suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's from Romans 1. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. That's also in Romans 1. And they do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and anger. And that's from Romans 2.8, which I will read to you. Romans 2.8, But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey righteousness, unrighteousness, wrath, and anger, 
Those who do not obey the truth says they obey unrighteousness, wrath, and anger. Romans 2, 8. But we have the spirit of truth. We have been delivered into the realm of truth. In fact, we have the mind of Christ. Go to 2 Thessalonians 2. Turn there with me. We've covered this a couple times. But we covered 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, verse 10 through 12 or 10 through 13. I don't remember, but I'm going to add the next verse to it. And I left this out intentionally before. I left verse 14 out because I was going to get to it later. So we're going to get to it right now. 2 Thessalonians 2. We'll read verses 10 through 14. 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 14. Tim, can you read that for us? Verse 13, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as the first fruits. And for what did God choose you for? Salvation? Sanctification? By what? The Spirit and faith in the truth. So we have salvation through faith in the truth, but we also have the next step sanctification by faith in the truth. And he adds, Paul adds, it was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation and sanctification by faith in the truth taught to you by the Spirit, and it was for this reason he called you through the gospel, the gospel of truth, right? that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. As believers, we have the Spirit who saves us and sanctifies us as he teaches us the truth. We are sanctified in truth. And that brings us to John 17, 17, where, we, where I told you we were going to cover three weeks ago. It's taken me up to this point to get to the verse we're going to cover, John 17, 17. Everything up until now has been the introduction. Aren't you glad I'm not preaching? <laughs> John 17, 17. It's in your notes. If I, if every, hopefully everybody got a, a set of notes so you don't have to turn back to John 17. It's in your notes. Right at the first page. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And verse 19. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And I forgot to read John 17. That was my plan was to read John 17 when we started, but I forgot. Um, it's all right. Um, we're going to cover this now. Sanctify them in your truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. We are sanctified in truth. Jesus said it twice, right? Verse 17 and in verse 19. Jesus' sanctification is also mentioned in John 10:36, where Jesus states about himself, whom the Father sanctified and set into the world. And we're going to look at John 10 later. But in John 10, Jesus says, he was the one whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world. Sanctification is commonly referred to as spiritual growth. Okay? To sanctify means to make holy to set aside a sacred, 
or to purify or free from sin. That's what it means to sanctify. Progressive sanctification is the process of growing in holiness. It's the process of setting aside or the process of purifying and freeing us from sin. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 35, asks, what is sanctification? The answer is, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. The Greek word here for sanctification in John 17, hegiosmos, is also translated as holiness. And it carries the idea of setting aside something for a particular use. And that, that setting aside something for a particular use reminds me of an Awana definition. I'm, some of you have taught Awana. And the, and the definition for holy, what was holy for Awana, if you taught it? Do you remember what it was? Set apart. That's what holiness meant, to be set apart. Okay, this is what that reminds me of. Okay. Sanctification carries the idea of setting aside something for a particular use. Believers are set apart for God and for his purposes, so that the believer does God's will. Believers are sanctified to do what God wants and to hate all that God hates. Jesus said in verse 19, that they themselves, meaning us, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. What's the also in there indicate? If Jesus said that they also may be sanctified in truth, talking about us, what's the also referring to? For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. But also is telling us that Jesus is sanctified the same way we are sanctified that they also may be sanctified in truth, saying that Jesus is sanctified in truth also. Okay, We are sanctified in truth, and Jesus is sanctified in truth. Do you see that? Some of you look lost. Let me read that again. I'll find the beginning here. John 17 Verse 16, they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. 18, as you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus Christ sanctified himself in the truth the same way we are sanctified in the truth. You see that? Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 26, speaking of husbands and wives, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This is about husbands and wives, but the parallel here is to the church. And how did Jesus sanctify the church? He sanctified her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Sanctification comes through the word, the truth. It comes through knowing the truth and obeying the truth. Go to Ephesians 4. Let's look at that a little closer. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. You'll notice as we go through this, the same books of the Bible are the ones that keep coming up over and over and over again. The Gospel of John, Ephesians, and 2 Thessalonians we keep coming back to. Those books as a whole have a lot to say about what we're talking about, especially the Gospel of John. Ephesians 4, verses 23 and 25. Uh, Al, can you read that for us?
Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Sounds familiar? Put on the new man, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth of each of you to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We are renewed in our minds by putting on the new man, which was created in truth. Do you see that? Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The new man is created in truth. You see it? You're renewed in your mind and created a new man in righteousness, holiness, and truth. And just like we heard in 1 Corinthians 2, we receive the spirit of truth, and then it says, which we also speak to each other, and here we have that again, right? So we've been renewed in the spirit of our mind, which is in the likeness of God. So we've been renewed in righteousness, holiness, and truth, and it says, therefore, speak truth, each of you, to his neighbor. See that? You learn the truth, and we have a responsibility to speak truth to our neighbor. Just like it said in 1 Corinthians 2, we learn the truth from the spirit of truth, which we also speak to each other. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, which we already covered, but we always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because that God has chosen you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. Salvation and sanctification come by faith in the truth. Sanctification is accomplished by means of the truth, which is the revelation of God contained in the scriptures, the Old and the New Testament, left to us by the apostles and prophets. That's how we are sanctified. The Bible alone is the source and foundation of all sanctifying truth and the basis for any spiritual growth. John 15.3 says... You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And then go to Titus 1.1. This is the last one in this section. Titus 1.1. Titus 1.1. Wade, can you read that for us? Those chosen by God, NAS says, by faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which we already covered, right? If you're saved, you've come to a knowledge of the truth. But the knowledge of truth accords to what? Godliness. The truth has an effect, right? God saved you by the truth. God sanctified you by the truth. The truth has an effect. The effect is the truth leads to godliness, sanctification. 1 Peter 1.22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your soul. The effect of the truth is godliness, and it leads to the purifying of your soul. Jesus said, I sanctify myself. We're not going to get, we only got about 10 minutes left. We're not going to get very far into this section. Um, wondering how much I should try to cover this. <laughs> Jesus said, I sanctify myself. The question I'm going to ask is, what does it mean that Jesus sanctified himself? Right? We know how we're sanctified now, right? We're sanctified by the truth. We receive the spirit of truth. We learn the truth. We're sanctified by the truth. As we learn the truth, it leads to godliness. Our lives change. We flee from sin and to righteousness, doing what is right before God. So what does it mean that Jesus said, I sanctify myself. And not only does he say he sanctified himself, he says he sanctified himself in the truth, right? That they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus is self-sanctified here. And he is self-sanctified in the truth. What does that mean? 
I think probably the best thing to do here is before I get started, I'm not going to get far enough in here to answer this question with just 10 minutes. Um, I'll just leave that with you. <laughs> and you can think about that for next week. And then uh, we'll ask questions and maybe we'll be done just a little bit early. I don't want to try to start this next spot with only 10 minutes left. Um, what does it mean that Jesus sanctified himself? Or what does it mean that Jesus is sanctified in truth? How can Jesus sanctify himself? It's a good question. <laughs> but we'll leave that for next week. Okay, other than that question of how did Jesus sanctify himself, are there other questions? Lisa? From Christianity? Yeah, I've heard that before a couple times. I've heard that before um, a couple times. And um, the impression I get from the people who've done that is I think it's some, hard for some people to accept that salvation is completely a gift of God. Right? Catholicism is works-based. They want to do something to add to the salvation. And Catholicism lets them do that. Right? They're adding works. It's a works-based system. If you're Catholic, it's, I mean, it's there, right? You have to do the things. You have to go to Mass. If you want to go to heaven, you do these things. You, there's lists of things. Obviously, it's a misconception. It's obviously wrong, right? But it's in the Catholicism. It's in their teaching, right? It's there. Al? <laughs> yeah. And they wrap salvation up in sacraments. Yep. That's why you have to go to Mass, right, to receive the sacrament. And confession. You have to go confess. Right? So these are things that they're doing that are contributing to their salvation. Salvation isn't all of God to them. Yeah. He denies it. Well, but maybe he's really a believer and just confused about what Catholicism is. And maybe as... <laughs> Right. And the, read through the book of Hebrews, right? <laughs> right? Hebrews. Jesus is our higher priest, right? He is the one who intercedes for God for us. We don't need a priest anymore, right? And Lisi, we just, we just pray that God will open his eyes to the heirs of the Catholicism and he'll see it. Because obviously right now he's either blind to it or he's new enough he hasn't seen it yet. But, I mean, the errors are there and they should be pretty obvious. So hopefully God opens his eyes to see the errors. Oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah. Tim? <laughs> right, he is truth. We're going to get to that next time. But, uh, I'll, well, it's, actually, it's um, Dan. I think Dan will be back next week. And if Dan can take the next few weeks, um, 
I will happily let him because I need to get caught up. <laughs> I, I got other things I need to get caught up on, but hopefully Dan will take the next few weeks. But then we'll be back to this. Dan, hopefully he'll take a few weeks, and then this is my third week. Hopefully he'll take two or three weeks, and then I'll be back. <laughs> and we'll cover this. So there's a long time to think about this question. <laughs> but another one of your comments, Tim, about it's amazing how it's, it's impossible for us to comprehend how great God is and how far he is separated from man. Which is why these truths, like we have the mind of Christ, are mind-boggling. They're hard for us to understand. And I think that's where the Van Til, Gordon Clark, where Van Til was saying our thoughts can't coincide with God's thoughts at any point. Because God is so far out there. So kind of there was an error there that he thought God was so much greater than all of us that God couldn't possibly have given us the mind of Christ in the way that we're talking about it here. But he did. I mean, this is amazing. And it's, it's hard, it, it, it's, it's impossible for us to even comprehend. But God's word is true, right? God's word says it, so we accept it as truth. We have the mind of Christ, right? And I think that has to do with the spirit of truth is teaching us the truth, and since the truth is all contained in God, we have the mind of Christ. Any truth that we understand is the thinking God's thoughts after him. It is God's thoughts, right? It has to be for it to be true. Anything else? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for the time that we can spend studying your word, for the time that we can spend being encouraged by other believers by uh, speaking with each other and talking with each other and having fellowship with each other. I pray, Lord, that today we would speak truth to each other, that your spirit of truth would be working in this room, in this place, that you would be teaching us and guiding us in all truth, that we would use each other to do that also, and your word, and that um, Pastor Walden would also speak your truth in love, and that we would learn from him and be guided in your truth by learning more about your word. May you be with us here today. May we have sweet fellowship with each other. And may you be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.